namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa namo tassa bhagavato arahato sama sambuddhassa buddhang dhammang sanghang namasang Today being the full moon of the month of Marga uh, in Pali, Marga Puja, and the occasion from the time of the Buddha that we remember is um, when it's recorded that uh, 1250 Arahants spontaneously uh, came to visit the Buddha without prearrangement. And so the, one, of the, one of the things we could recollect at this time is um, what it is that as Buddhists, what is the orientation, what is the focus what do we aspire towards? What, what do we believe in? And sometimes people will ask you, what do you believe in as a Buddhist? In other religions, they believe in this, they believe in that, and they say, what do you believe in as a Buddhist? And, and so one of the answers we could give, one of the things we could say there is, is I believe it's possible for human beings to be completely free from suffering. They don't wait till they die and go to heaven, or they don't have to wait for somebody else to come and save them. But human beings, if they make the right kind of effort in the right kind of way, it's possible to completely free their hearts and minds from all greed, aversion, and delusion. It's uh, something that we could say, or I could say, I believe in as a Buddhist. And with this. Uh, occasion of the 1250 Arahants uh, coming to meet the Buddha, it's, uh, we can view it as a, as a reminder for that this is possible. Yeah. In our confused world where uh, we don't get that many reminders of what what's really important, what really matters, we can get distracted, easily get distracted by mundane activities and pressing as they can seem at the time you know, it's always important to get enough food get enough money you know, get enough heat you know, the basic necessities of life these things are relatively important but what the great spiritual teachers have taught us is that behind these relatively important matters it's really important to have our, our hearts rightly oriented. Atasmapanitija, as it says in the Mahamangala Sutta, one's, oneself rightly directed, to be facing the right direction. Because if we don't, well then the pull of these other concerns 
because they can be very convincing. You know, I've got to get enough money, otherwise I'm going to not be able to pay the bills in the winter and I'm going to freeze. And yes, these things, they are important. But uh, from the Buddhist perspective, there's even more important matters than that. And more subtle matters. And all the Buddhist teaching are pointing to these deeper, uh, profound matters, the Dhamma concerns, that if we don't make them conscious, if we don't make an effort with regards to these principles, then we can get lost. It's like you can have a really good boat and you can have um, you can be out at sea sailing and having a great time, but if you haven't got a compass or you don't know how to navigate according to the stars, you can just go around in circles. And that's what it is with us. We've got a great vessel. We've got this human being, this human existence, all healthy, intelligent, educated, well-fed, well-medicated, everything we need on a fundamental level. Uh, if we compare ourselves with most of human beings throughout all history, we're really fortunate. And yet we still go around in circles, in samsara, uh, hoping for satisfaction, hoping for contentment, and looking for satisfaction and contentment in places where it doesn't exist. And so what the Buddha pointed out, well, there is this possibility of real satisfaction, real contentment, it does exist, he realized it. And it's the heart that's completely free from greed, aversion and delusion. And so uh, we're fortunate that he taught and those beings that have realized this, the Arahants throughout the ages, that have realized the benefit of these teachings. So on Marga Puja, it's something we can reflect on, we remind ourselves, this is, this is how we direct our lives. And if we don't make this conscious, we don't make this clear, then we can get become distracted by whether somebody likes us or doesn't like us, or you know, whether we're you know, feeling happy or we're feeling sad, or, or whether being successful or whether we're failing. The, the conditions of the world come and go, and some, to some degree, we don't have a lot of control over these things. And from the Buddhist perspective, if our life is not rightly directed, we can get blown over by these things. And so, uh, an occasion like this, uh, remembering this uh, event that took place in the lifetime of the Buddha, making a point, coming to the monastery, staying in the monastery uh, on this occasion, and listening to a Dhamma talk about the subject and, and also engaging in, in the traditional practices. Now, a lot of um, over-educated people don't see the value in, uh, in tradition. Uh, certainly in the West it's the case that uh, unless somebody's got a rational explanation for something, they're keen to dismiss it. Uh, rituals and myths are uh, considered as, uh, as something for, for primitive uh, people. However, the, the expression of respect for the Dhamma, the expression of respect for the Buddha, for the Sangha, that when we bow down, when we offer candles and incense, and when we chant like millions and millions of people have done for thousands of years, Praise to the Buddha, praise the Dhamma, praise the Sangha, as we did during our puja this evening. 
the gesture of respect we make when we do this with our body and speech can be a very important aspect of orienting our lives <coughs> in the right direction. Our rational mind, yeah, it's got its place, obviously the rational faculty's got its place, but as we're all aware that the rational faculties don't don't cut that deep often. Uh, you get taken over by some passion, we can behave and think and speak quite irrationally. And so actually rituals and uh, symbols uh, can be skillfully used, if they use mindfully and skillfully, can be a, a language we engage with to teach our hearts. You know, you know, I early, early days when I was a young monk and Ajahn Chah was telling us that it didn't matter whether we were Westerners, we weren't used to bowing or not, we still had to bow to each other. Junior monks always bow to senior monks. It doesn't matter whether you like the guy or not or whatever. If he's senior to you, you bow to him. That's all there is to it. And he would do the same thing. And some old monk would come to the monastery, even if he didn't necessarily keep the rules very strictly and wear his robes very wonderfully and keep the ascetic practices very impressively. If he was senior to Ajahn Chah, Ajahn Chah would get off his high seat and get down and, and bow to the senior monk. And it, it's part of the training. And, and it took me some time, some years, I remember, um, as a junior monk to, to bow to some of these other uh, characters that I was living with. And some of them weren't very long out of the American, American military and uh, they weren't my favourite sort of human beings. And yet the fact was, they were monks and they were senior to me and the thing to do was to bow. And so we engage in this ritual and then with time, the feeling started, I'm really pleased I can do this. Whether I like or dislike this guy has got nothing to do with it at all. He's making the effort to live a good life. He's keeping the precepts, he's trying hard and he's been doing longer than I have. And so the right thing to do is to express respect and, and to be able to do that start to feel like a good thing. Or even bowing down to Buddha images in the beginning, I think for a lot of Westerners is a difficult thing to do. You know, we were all brought up with thou shalt not bow down to graven images and, and what is that thing anyway? Why should we bow down to that thing? But another question we could ask is what is it that means that I can't lower myself in front of something which symbolizes perfection? And the Buddha image symbolizes perfect wisdom and perfect compassion. That's what it symbolizes for us. And so why can't we show it respect? Uh, well, that's which is stopping us from showing respect, that which is stopping us from bowing down, that's what we need to become aware of. And so rituals and symbols and uh, traditions, uh, these things, if used mindfully and skillfully, can have a very important part to play in orienting our lives in the right direction, that is the direction towards freedom from all greed, aversion and delusion. So that's one way we could reflect on this occasion and you know, reminding ourselves, reorienting ourselves uh, towards that which matters most. And also to, I think it, uh, it can be wise and skillful to reflect on the teaching the Buddha gave on this occasion. A very well-known teaching uh, in, in Pali, the the stanza that's most often recollected is Sabba Papasa Akaranang Kusalasa Upasampada Satchita Pariyotpanang Etang Putana Sasanang, which traditional Buddhists will all be very aware of. 
sabbapapasa akaranam, which means refrain from doing that which is unwholesome, unskillful. Kusalasa upasampada, cultivate that which is good, cultivate that which is wholesome. Satchitaprayotapanam, purify the heart. Etambuddhanasasanam, this is a teaching of all the Buddhas. All the Buddhas have said the same thing. This one apparently simple teaching. And again, uh, one reason for raising it up and contemplating it is because although it appears very simple, uh, it's not necessarily the case that we're doing it. Mm. So depending on where we're coming from in practice, we may do one bit and we don't do the rest. But from the Buddhist perspective, all of these aspects, sabbapapasakanam, kusalasupasampada, satchitaparyotapanam, all of these aspects of the path are important. And the sequence in which they're given is also important you know, to contemplate this. And why did the Buddha start off by saying, refrain from doing that which is unskillful? And why didn't he say, purify your hearts first? And there's a logic to this. And, uh, and they're not, again, it's not a doctrine that we necessarily should be clinging to, but to contemplate and say, well, what is the effect? And you can see that uh, a lot of people will make effort in their life to go on meditation retreats, or maybe they make a lot of merit, but they're not keeping the five basic precepts. It's like, you know, it's like uh, if, you, if you injure yourself, <clears throat> you, you, you cut yourself and you don't clean the wound up first. You just put a dressing on it. You know, the first thing to do if you've if you've injured yourself, you've wounded yourself, is to clean the wound, right? because there could be some infection in there. And similarly with the with the uh, the spiritual disciplines, and, uh, there is this aspect, this profoundly important aspect of the part that first we need to clean up our act. In fact, these first two lines, refrain from that which is unskillful, cultivate that which is good. Uh, to me, when I think about that, what it, what it sounds like is the Buddha is saying, take responsibility for your life. In the time of the Buddha, as in this time, uh, there, 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 there are always those teachings around which will encourage us to become dependent on things that are outside of ourselves, belief systems. Uh, from the Buddhist perspective, what we believe is important, but also what we do is really important. It's not enough to just say, I believe in this and that, and, and hope that everything's going to turn out okay. We might believe in this and that, but what about what we do with our body and speech? And so the bottom line really with, with spiritual practice is how do we conduct ourselves with our body and speech? You know, refraining from that which is unskillful and cultivating that which is, which is wholesome. Somebody was mentioning to me recently that they, they've been a Buddhist for many, many years and, and uh, they're saying they really, they still struggled with this idea of making merit or cultivating punya. And I said, well, I think I used to have a feeling like that, but I certainly don't feel that way now. 
and I think it's a really good thing to consciously, intentionally cultivate goodness. The reason we've heard the Buddha's teachings long enough, we've all we're all old enough. The reason that actually the teachings don't click, the reasons that we don't get the message and let go of this burden of attachment, is what? What is the reason? Well, why can't we just let go? We all know that's what we're supposed to do. Well, I would suggest it's because one. Maybe we're still doing things that are causing obstruction, we haven't stopped doing those things that are unskillful. But also, very importantly, is too, we haven't built up a good enough storehouse of goodness. uh, I know sometimes we can feel afraid that we're getting all materialistic about our spiritual practice. and We've probably seen people who are so busy doing good deeds that that they start to sort of smell bad, really. They smell of too much goodness. They've made so much merit that they become obnoxious. And, and so we, if we've seen this, then you think, well, I don't want to become like that. I don't want to become conceited about um, building up merit. But actually, if we look at it, we probably are already that way. And the ability to see our attachment to our goodness is quite a refined thing really which is what the third line of the stabza uh, addresses satchita pariyotvanam purifying the heart so we can we can be refraining from doing that which is unskillful we can be keeping the five basic precepts we can be trying to cultivate that which is good uh, being generous being kind Looking at the things that get in the way of, of our refraining from that which is unskillful. Looking at the things that get in the way of our doing that which is wholesome. And so we can upgrade ourselves on that level. But then there can still be uh, a lot of attachment going on. Ajahn Shah used to like to make this joke about uh, the difference between vipassana and vipassanu. And uh, vipassanu is a shortened version of vipassanu pakilesa which is basically defiled insight. So the idea behind that being that even though we can be refraining from unwholesomeness, cultivating some wholesomeness, and, and even can be developing some, some, uh, some mundane insights into practice, but there's still the risk that there's going to be the habit of grasping, the clinging to, to these insights. And so... Uh, there needs to be a constant effort, not to be, not just to settle for, okay, well, that's good, I keep the precepts and I make some merit from time to time and that's good enough. The Buddha didn't say that's good enough. The Buddha said, then we need to go to another level of getting more refined. And so, unfortunately, he gave us very clear teachings on what it means to refine purifying the heart. Over and again, he, he talked about from different perspectives, different ways of setting up like a barometer in practice for ourselves. What is Dhamma and what is not Dhamma? So yes, we start on the coarser level of of refraining from gossiping and spiteful speech and stealing and killing and and so on. We cultivate kindness and gratitude and generosity and, and so on. But then we need to exercise mindfulness in a way 
that shows us what sort of relationship do we have? What sort of relationship do we have with our spiritual practice? Are we, are we holding to the idea of I'm more spiritual than they are? Are we holding to any ideas? Because in fact any ideas that we're clinging to are going to become an obstruction. And this is easy to talk about, but the reality is we've had those things there for so long that we really believe that they're me. And so one of the teachings that the Buddha gave, which I've, uh, I reflect on regularly, I found particularly inspiring, was to uh, Bhikkhuni Mahapajapati, uh, the, the, the nun that... Um, was uh, looked up to by the other nuns during the time of the Buddha and and in a specific discourse that the Buddha gave to her to support her in her practice he identified these these things that he said if this is Dhamma if this is the case then it's Dhamma if that's the case then it's not Dhamma and so you know the list that he gave on that occasion is a very helpful way of if we're talking about purifying our practice you can go through this list and see you know like he did Dispassion. If if our practice is inclining towards dispassion, we'll say this is this is dhamma. If it's inclined more towards passion, then it's not dhamma. So if we're getting more upset about things, more indignant about things, then it's not going in the right direction. So, and this way we refine our practice down. So dispassion, detachment. Dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort, and solitude. Those conditions, it's a good list to remember. And at any stage in our practice, we can, we can reflect on what's going on. Detachment. Is my practice going in a direction whereby I've got a little bit better perspective on things? Like when when anger arises. Okay, we're not shouting off to somebody and we're not killing, we're not, you know, we've got the coarse level of practice in place to some degree. But in our mind, we're still harboring resentment. So if we have detachment, then when ill will arises in mind, we don't just automatically deny it or indulge in it. Most of us have been brought up with the idea that uh, you're bad if you're angry, you shouldn't get angry, and so either we feel guilty about it and give ourselves a very bad time about I shouldn't feel angry and I'm hopeless because I get so angry and we get frustrated and or we just go into into avoidance and we just deny it. It's not there, I'm not angry, push it down and, and sometimes if you've been angry for many years and uh, since you're a child even, and you're just avoiding anger all the time, you don't even know you're angry. And so if we have some detachment in our practice, then it means, it doesn't mean to say that we're not going to feel anger. That means, at least in the beginning, that when anger arises, we've got some perspective on it. Oh, there's anger. No, we don't automatically judge ourselves. I'm wrong because I'm angry. There's anger. Or there's conceit. Oh, wow. Actually, it takes a lot of effort it takes a lot of skill and practice to be able to see conceit. Usually when conceit arises, we pretend it's not there. 
No, it's, again, I was talking to somebody recently, and and uh, and about this issue with conceit, and and this guy was saying, "Oh, that doesn't apply to me." <laughs> I really had to restrain myself. It was, uh, you know, the idea that you don't have conceit is a is not a very clever idea, uh, because from the Buddhist perspective, conceit is not just getting around thinking that you're better than everybody, thinking you're equal to people, or thinking you're worse than people. If you have such a thought and you believe in it, it's still conceit. Attaching to any thought about me creates conceit in the mind. So even to start to get a little perspective on conceit um, is a good thing and requires some detachment. Dispersal, learning to let go, is, is the momentum of clinging increasing in my life or is the momentum of letting go? Dispersal, at least that's my contemplation on it. Is there a willingness, like for instance when if somebody says something hurtful and do we hold on to it or is there a willingness and an ability mm-hmm. which is not the same thing as the willingness the willingness is part of it then there's the ability so the willingness to let go and the ability to let go or modesty mm-hmm. modesty and humility is uh, similarly you know with modesty or humility the ability is there the willingness is there the willingness to acknowledge lack of modesty or lack of humility as part of it but then is there the ability to act on that so you know for instance being able to say sorry you know, some people can't say sorry why can't they say sorry because there's a, a rigidity there's a, a habit of holding back clinging to me that even if a lot of these things even if we want to be free from them we can't do it even if we have the willingness we can't do it well we need to refine it down more and the way we refine it down more is not by just forcing ourselves to try and become detached or to try and let go or or to try and be modest you know but exercising mindfulness and wise reflection so that when immodesty or lack of humility or hubris comes up, you know, is, there, is there the perspective on this to look at that without immediately jumping to, oh, I'm bad, I'm hopeless because of my lack of modesty? Contentment is my practice moving towards, is my life moving towards contentment or discontentment? what's increasing contentment or discontentment now having these things as barometers as a barometer for practice is in terms of purifying the heart you can remember this is the Buddha didn't didn't give these teachings so that we would use them as a stick to hit ourselves with or hit other people with but rather as something to measure ourselves up against and so you can look at, just one can contemplate contentment. You know, what does it mean, contentment or discontentment? Are we always wanting more, wanting to buy more stuff? Even if we are still wanting to buy more stuff, get more stuff, fill our house with more things, get more books, whatever it is we, we, we like getting, even if we do still want to get it, do we hesitate a little bit 
Yeah, to, it's important with these practices to remember to apply them not in an overly idealistic way, but in a practical way. Yes, there's the ideal which we aim for, which is fine, but then to come back and say, well, I believe in that, I believe in, <clears throat> in modesty and contentment and, and these principles. Yes, I, I respect them, I trust in them. But what do we do about it? Well, what we can do about it with regards to contentment is that when we, we have this impulse to be greedy and we want to get something more, some more stuff, we hesitate. And you develop this as a, as a like a, uh, uh, like the way we would inhabit our, our hands instead of, like if you've got an itch, maybe you've got a wound and you, it's itching, you want to scratch it, you, you teach yourself, don't scratch. Yeah, I've got this cut on my knee and it's itchy. You don't want to scratch it. Yeah, well, if you scratch it, it'll get infected again. So you train yourself to inhibit the impulse to scratch. And now this is not a, a blind neurotic inhibition that we're cultivating. This is wholesome. This is skillful. This is clever, isn't it? It's clever to not scratch an injury that's, that's healing. Well, likewise, with our, our tendency to be greedy, for whatever it is, you know, if we don't have to be afraid that I'm going to become a neurotic, repressed person just because I'm inhibiting my impulse to follow my greed. You know, this is out of respect for the principle of contentment. You want to go and buy something more on Amazon or you want to go and buy something more in the supermarket. You can just, as we would inhibit our hand from scratching the itch, we inhibit the mind. Just wait. Okay. Do I have to follow it? Do I have to follow it? Now we're not going to say, we're not saying we'll never follow it. This is how I stopped smoking, or one aspect of how I stopped smoking cigarettes after I've been, I knew as a monk I wasn't supposed to be smoking cigarettes. At least I didn't smoke cigarettes usually when I was in Ajahn Chah's monasteries, but sometimes when I'd go away and I was around other monks who were smoking and I would start smoking again and I knew it wasn't a good thing. It wasn't a good thing for my meditation. And so I say, I had this thing, well, okay, when you want to smoke, you've got to wait five minutes. You're not going to give up forever. That's too much. The thought of giving up smoking forever was just an intolerable thought. I couldn't, couldn't imagine it. And so I said, okay, well, just, just don't have a cigarette for five minutes. And so I do that. Want a cigarette? It's uh, half past ten. Okay, wait, wait, wait. Okay, 25 to 11, I can have a cigarette. So I have a cigarette. And then one day, <coughs> I remember, it was two o'clock. Okay, I want a cigarette. Well, I'll have to wait five minutes. It was 20 past two before I remembered I wanted a cigarette. In other words, that, that inhibition, that inhibiting the impulse broke the pattern. It broke the cycle. Sometimes we can have such a fear of our habits of blind repression that we're not willing to exercise mindful <coughs> restraint. Yeah, but mindful restraint is uh, something that the Buddha praised on many occasions. So, so with regards to cultivating contentment, yeah, you may hold it up as a theme. Mm -hmm. Is my life going towards more contentment or more discontentment? Frugality. Again, we can look at how we, what we do, you know, not just what we believe in. We believe in frugality, yes, frugality is great, but what do we actually do Purifying the heart, yes, we can um, be going on retreats and, and uh, we can be 
exercising the discipline of attention and learning how to be more concentrated, but how does that integrate into our life? And one of the ways that uh, it, uh, you can judge whether it is integrating or whether the spiritual life is just some sort of split-off mental gymnastics that we get up to and, and rarefied conditions, which is which is there's a risk of that happening in spiritual life. But we can uh, look and see, well, is it really integrating our daily life with on this for something like frugality or extravagance? Yeah. In the monastery here, we, we try to uh, exercise frugality with the discipline of turning lights off and not wasting water. So, well, you know, the Chinese, they're building another power station every month or something, a gas or coal-fired power station and my turning off the lights or not wasting, not wasting water is not going to make much difference to the planet. Well, you can think like that, but if you do think like that, well, maybe you'll never do anything and probably not develop frugality. However, whatever the Chinese are doing with their coal-fired power stations, if we make the effort to turn the lights off and to not just let the tap, leave the tap running for hours and heedlessly, you know, we can be cultivating this energy of, again, of, of restraint, of modesty, of contentment, of frugality, which accords with, according to the Buddha, accords with Dhamma. And effort, in terms of purifying the heart, if we want a barometer to, to see is our practice of purification going in the right direction or not? Well, are we really, are we willing, let's look at our willingness and our ability. Yes, we believe in effort, we think it's marvellous and wonderful, people who make effort in spiritual practice, that's very good. But what do we actually do about it? <clears throat> do we have the willingness, for instance, to make effort to begin again? Yeah. Wasn't that long ago? It was New Year's Eve, and and uh, a lot of people made resolutions on New Year's Eve. And, and part of the skillfulness of making resolutions is to have the modesty to accept that maybe we're not going to keep our resolutions. Now, some people say that's fatalistic. I think it's realistic. Say, so, yes, I really determined to do such and such, or to not do this. Make this determination, make this resolve, but also to have the willingness and the realistic perspective to say, Well, if I break my resolve, I'm going to begin again. Now, sometimes people are so committed to the ideals, so committed to the belief in their aspiration, I can do it, I'm going to do it, and, and there's this fear at the same time as they attach to the desire to succeed in, in achieving their aspiration. They attach to that desire, they create the equal and opposite fear that they're going to fail. Lack of mindfulness. But if we make mindful resolves, mindful resolutions, mindful aspirations, we say, well, this is my determination, I determine to do this. And then there's the fear at the same time, yes, I want to do that, but there's a little bit of fear there. Well, maybe we acknowledge that fear. We don't have to deny the fear. We can open up, open up our broad-based awareness and Acknowledge, yeah, maybe I'm going to fail. Well, that's okay. I'm not saying we want to fail. Yeah, we're just saying, well, it's okay to acknowledge here and now that I've got the fear of failing. And this way we're not denying the fear of failing. If we deny the fear of failing, well, then there's a real chance it's going to come back and kick us in the teeth later on.
there's a bigger chance we will fail. So if we have this realistic uh, perspective on our aspirations, say yes, I, I'm determined to do such and such, and and then the months, the weeks go by, the months go by, here we are, it's nearly March, and maybe we've broken our resolve, and instead of just forgetting it, is there the willingness to make the effort to begin again? Mm-hmm. So we can believe in the great effort, the ultimate effort that the Buddha made, and, and I've heard of people trying to do this, and like the Buddha, sit under a tree and say, I'm going to sit here until my blood dries up and my bones break, or I get enlightened. And for the Buddha, well, he did get enlightened, but for other people, they just ruin their meniscus and end up having an operation on their, tit- on their knees. And I haven't heard of anybody whose blood's dried up, thank goodness. But in other words, we need to exercise uh, mindfulness about the effort that we make in practice. And so we believe in it, we respect it, but then the willingness to be modest and humble and say, well, okay, just just begin again. Or like if we're giving up smoking, and say, okay, I'll begin again. Begin again. doesn't matter. Well, it does matter. Uh, I don't want to give you the impression it doesn't matter if we fail, but... If we have failed, we begin again. That willingness to beginning, or or is it the case that oh, I've failed so many times I can't be bothered anymore? Well, if that's the case, you can encourage yourself by thinking. So, well, you know, the truth is, the reality is that every moment is unique. Our memory, the way our memory works, and because we attach to our memory, we tend to think, oh, I've been here before. Mm-hmm. We've never been here before. This moment's never been here before. Conditions have never conspired to be exactly like this. Each moment is unique. And if we remember that, if we reflect on that, say this moment is new, this moment is new, each moment is always new. Each moment I'm always new. Each moment there's always a possibility things will be different. That's the reality. We can trust in that. We can believe in that. And if that inspires us to begin again, then it's a good thing. Encourage ourselves to make the effort instead of giving up. And then the last one of uh, solitude. In terms of purification, is our practice going towards, well, on one level, it's, you know, we get to getting more sociable and, and trying to get more people on our, who, who friend us on, their, on our Facebook account or, or going in for invitations to more parties. Or is there a natural inclination towards just, well, you know, that doesn't really work for me anymore. So that's a good sign. But there's also a more refined interpretation of that, and that's the in terms of the way our minds work. Is it the case that our mind is still more interested in going out and engaging with conditions? Or is there a movement towards stopping and settling? And I think this was part of the consideration when Ajahn Sumato chose the name for Chitta's monastery called it Chitta Viveka. Because um, there's Kaya Viveka, you know, where the body withdraws from, from external stimulus, from going to parties and socialising and, and sitting in the coffee shop and so on. You know, to being more contented. So there's Kaya Viveka coming and finding a physical place. 
But Kaya Viveka, what it's really aiming at is not as if there's some sort of uh, something ultimately wonderful about not talking to anybody. That's not the point. It's really moving towards, inclining the heart towards Jitta Viveka, where the heart takes a break, where the heart retreats from external engaging, clinging, proliferating uh, around conditions. So I don't know about you, but I would expect probably all of us, we go through this list of dispassion, detachment, dispersal, modesty, contentment, frugality, effort and solitude, and think, wow, you know, got a lot of work to do on that yet. Well, that's all right. The, the point of having this list, the reason the Buddha gave it to Bhikkhuni Mahapajapati, was so that there can be a frame of reference. So with this teaching of refraining from doing that which is unwholesome, cultivating the good, purifying the heart, these three aspects of the way. Yeah. If you don't want to just settle for the first stage of becoming good, yeah. becoming a very good person is, is, is yeah, it's better than being a bad person, but that wasn't the point of, that wasn't all there was to the Buddha's teaching. He wanted it also to purify the heart so that it really could be the experience of, of freedom. And so I think that's enough for this evening. Thank you very much for your attention. Andamayang damawadakata sadhukarang dadamma se sadhukarang dadamma se